0: Friends, welcome back to the Ransomed Heart Podcast. I'm John Eldridge, and if you have been tracking with us, you know that we are in the midst of a very special series. We're airing for the first time a conference that Brent Curtis and I did back in 1997 before his death on the sacred romance, and these were the talks that birthed the book, The Sacred Romance, and we thought that you would enjoy... Hearing these, if you're new to the sacred romance or if it's an old favorite of yours. So, this week it's session four, and I'm speaking on a story big enough to live in. Now, yeah, there are some ways in which whenever I hear Brent do that particular talk, I am really torn. I mean, there's part of me that wants to say, well, that's fine. I mean, that's all well and good, but it's a whole different matter when they're your legs. Right? I mean, you can talk about sort of at a, at a head level, at a cognitive level, oh, well, fine, I understand that God is wild, but His wildness means our redemption but at a heart level when it's your own life and when it's the losses that you have experienced and the years of unanswered prayer, it's a whole other story. And the question becomes, how can you possibly trust a lover who is so wild? And the only possible answer is, because deep in your own heart, you are convinced that His heart towards you is kind. And that His wildness really does mean life for you personally, in very personal ways. See, when we think of God only as the author of the story, when we see God only as sort of the chess player behind the game moving the pieces around on the board and using us up like pawns in some larger story, it doesn't help us, really, to trust His heart. As Herman Melville said, The reason most people fear God and at bottom dislike Him is because they rather distrust His heart and they fancy Him all brain like a watch. God is the great mind behind it all. He's the great orchestrator. He's the the master schemer behind all the things that happen and it's very difficult from that place to begin to trust the heart of this God. But what if there's more? What if God is not just author? What if He is actually a character in the story? When you're watching a movie, when you're reading a novel, when you're you know, just listening to stories in some form, you're not thinking about the author, right? Right? When you're reading the Pickwick Papers or A Tale of Two Cities, you're not thinking about Dickens, right? You're thinking about Chesuwig or you're thinking about you know, the people caught up in the, in the story. You identify with, you come to love and appreciate, you come to cheer and root for and in some way befriend almost, connect with the characters in the story because they're like us. They live and breathe as we do. They feel the struggles that we feel. They bleed and hurt like we do. You don't think about the author. But what if God is more than author? What if he is also the hero of the story? Which is how the scriptures present him. That longing for the story to make sense and for the hero to really have a good heart ripples through Literature, film, music. I mean, that theme, that longing has been expressed since the beginning of time, or at least of human recorded history. We have lost the story. That is the crisis of our age. We have totally lost the story. And so people go six, seven times to see Titanic as a way of interpreting life, as a way of trying to ground themselves and anchor themselves in something larger than themselves. They are looking for a story to live in. And tragically, the church was supposed to live out and offer and retell and remind us of the story. And the church is doing the J. Evans Pritchard thing. Right. Well, here are you know, three steps to a good quiet time and four patterns for effective marriage communication, and I want to throw a chair through a window. <laughs> that will never work. That will never give you the story to live in. It will never restore your heart, and it will never help your heart reconcile these radically two different things. The romance, the longings, and the experience of the tragedy and the wildness of God. We need the story. We need to recover the story deeply. And so what I want to do now is to try and and step back out of the immediacy of our scenes where we don't see what's going on and all just looks like randomness and recapture the story, the true story, the gospel, in four acts. Act one, once upon a time, all fairy tales right, begin once upon a time. And the reason why is that they're modeled after the truest fairy tale of them all. In the beginning, right? It's how the scriptures phrase it. Once upon a time. As Christians, most of your thoughts probably go to Genesis 1. You think I'm going to start talking about in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. You can't start there. That's Act 3 which shows you how much we've lost the larger story. You've got to go to John 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God in the beginning. In other words, in the once upon a time before all time, there was perfect love, perfect relationship, the life of the Trinity. For years, I always pictured God as alone, by himself, just, you know, strong, omnipotent, omniscient, you know, all of that, but by himself. God has never been by himself. He has always been in relationship. He has always been Trinity. How else could God be love? You see, when John tells us that God is love, and therefore love is eternal, How could God be love if there were not someone to love, right? Love is other-centered. It is focused on another. And because God is Trinity, at the heart of the story, at the beginning of all things, is perfect relationship, real community, the kind of love that we all have been looking for all our lives. It's almost inconceivable. So few people taste it in this life. But I want you to just reflect on maybe some of your best moments, uh, falling in love, or uh, moments of real friendship, you know, sitting around the campfire, telling stories, Uh, maybe moments with your kids on, on just a really great afternoon at the park, and there's laughter, and there's kidding, and there's joking, and there's intimacy. Those are all reflections of the Trinity. You see, when it gets to Act 3, Genesis 1, and it says that you are made in the image of this God, it means you're made in the image of the Trinity, which is why you are relational at the core of your being. Nothing will touch your heart like relationship, either to thrill it or to break it. Because all of us are images, and we live with the echoes, we live with the longings, we live with the memory of act one, perfect love. When I was a boy, my uh, parents would ship me off to my grandfather's ranch in um, eastern Oregon. And I would spend three months of the summer in a schoolboy's dream. Horseback riding, it was a real working ranch. I had a job to fulfill, tractors and pickup trucks and rifles and all of that. Sunday afternoons, we'd get in my grandfather's pickup, and we'd do what he would call going visiting. And we would just drop in on other farms and ranches in this, in this area, this valley. Third cousins, great-aunts and uncles, people who had just become family over the years. And we would sit on the front porch, and I would eat pie, and the old folks would sit around and tell their stories And there was this settled feeling, literally a physical feeling that everything was well in the world. That here was this wonderful story that had been going on for years, long before I ever got there, that didn't depend on me, I didn't have to get it going, I didn't have to keep it going, but rather they were inviting me up into it. They had planned on me, they were welcoming me into the heart of things. That's the invitation of the gospel. It is an invitation into a life and a story that has already been going on for a long time. The love of God. As Eugene Peterson says, traditional Christian spirituality is not taking bits and pieces of doctrine and putting them to use, it is entering into the life of God that is already in motion, a home that is ordered by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where we are welcomed into the heart of things. Have you noticed that everyone is looking for this all their life? I mean, in junior high school, you think it's the clique that you have just got to be a part of, right? Or, or it's the sports team, you know, that if you don't make the team this year, you're just going to die. Or, or it's, uh, you know, youth group or choir or what have you. And then as you move on into life, you, you think it's that special, you know, someone, Mr. or Mrs. Wright. And so you think it's marriage. If I can just get married, that'll do it. And then you get married and you realize, well, it's not quite it. And, and so, you know, maybe... You see that? If we get the right church, we find the right small group, if we move to the right town, it, everyone is looking for this. That We are all trying to find our way back into the sacred circle because we live with a memory of Act 1, of perfect relationship. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Nobody's found it. Right? We're not there yet. Right? And you thought it was just you. You, th- you live with this idea that everyone else has it somewhere in their life, right? And you're the only one that's kind of out, you know, doesn't fit in. No, nobody has it. Now, all really good love, really good love, true love, is generous in its heart. It is uh, open-armed. It's other-centered. And it, this is why married couples want to have children, because they soon realize that, the, that, that marriage is larger than just about you that the love is larger than about the two of you. It it is meant for others. It's why friendships form, and it's why good friendships allow other friends in. It's generosity of heart. You see, the Trinity is just like that. In Act 2 of the story, God begins to invite others in to the sacred romance, to this love that He has been living out. He creates angels, right? Now, we're not given a lot of insight into what it's like to be an angel, but notice that you never anywhere in Scripture meet a bored angel, right? I mean, whatever it is they get to be a part of, they are having a ball, right? I mean, everywhere you see them, it's it's incredible. Isaiah chapter 6, he sees the curtains parted, right, and beholds the glory of the Lord and the Uh, seraphim are flying around the temple and they are saying holy, holy, holy to each other. They're not singing it to God. Look it up. They are saying it to each other. Holy, holy, holy smokes. Do you see what I see? (laughs) This is unbelievable. You've had the experience of the angels and you might not have known it. You'll be, you know, walking along the beach, maybe on vacation and the sun is setting, and the way it creates that golden trail across the sea, right to you. And, ah, oh, there's just something in your heart that says, I wish Mary was here. I wish Bob was here. They'd love this, right? You go to a great movie, and you walk out, and you say, how am I ever going to explain this to my closest friends? I wish they had been here. Because every moment of glory is meant to be shared. You See? That's the experience of the angels. They are welcome to be a part of things and they love it. They love it. Well, some of them. Because something else happens in act two that is absolutely crucial for you to understand why life is the way it is in act three. There is a betrayal in the heart of the universe or better, there is a betrayal of the heart of the universe. Lucifer, son of the morning, who Ezekiel says walked among the fiery stones of heaven, doesn't want to be best supporting actor. He wants to be best actor. He wants to be the point. He wants to be the center of the story. And so he turns on his maker. And there is war in heaven. Milton in Paradise Lost says How shall I relate to human sense the invisible exploits of warring spirits? How, without remorse, the ruin of so many, glorious once and perfect while they stood. In Paradise Lost, Milton lets his imagination go back into Act 2, and he pictures a banquet, this huge, lavish banquet with pavilions and feasting, where the Father is honoring Jesus. And that's like the Trinity, isn't it? Whenever you see the Trinity relating to each other... The Father exalts the Son. The Son just returns the glory to the Father, the Spirit between them. In fact, you can never really even get a good look at the Spirit because as soon as you do, He points your attention to Jesus, right? They are so other-centered. So here's this banquet, and the Father is lifting up Jesus, and Satan is jealous. And it leads to murder he actually convinces a third revelation, seems to suggest, of the angels in heaven to go with him. And what's fascinating is that Milton uses the deception of Satan. How he gets the angels to go in this rebellion in Act 2 is he tells the angels, we were from the beginning. We are the center of the story. And they turn on this gracious love, this trinity, And there is war in heaven. Milton describes it thus. Arms on armor, clashing braid, horrible discord. Dire was the noise of conflict. While overhead the dismal hiss of flaming darts and fiery volleys flew. So together under this cope rushed both battles main with ruinous assault and inextinguishable rage. All heaven resounded. And had earth been then, all earth had to her center shook Deeds of eternal fame were done, but infinite. For wide was spread that conflict, and various, sometimes on firm ground, a standing fight, and then soaring on main wing, and all the air seemed conflicting fire. Long time in even scale, the battle hung, till Satan, no equal among the angels, Ranging through the dire attack, a fighting seraphim confused saw where the sword of Michael smote. And Milton describes him, several hundred years before Frank Peretti, as um, (laughs) felling whole squadrons of demons at once, uh, with broad two-handed sway, the terrible edge of the great archangel came down wide-wasting. But at the approach of Satan, Michael stops from battle and he turns and confronts him and he says, author of evil, unknown till thy revolt, how hast thou disturbed heaven's blessed peace and unto nature brought misery, uncreated till the crime of thy rebellion? How hast thou instilled thy malice into thousands, once upright, now proved false, Heaven, cast thee out. The end of Act 2 is the fall of Satan and his legions from the halls of heaven and the courtyards of paradise. But notice two things. First, they are not chained, not yet. They are left to play a role in the story. And secondly, Satan has introduced a doubt into the story, you cannot trust the heart of this God. He's not really for you. You've got to take things into your own hands, you see. And that doubt lingers now like smoke from a forest fire long after the battle has been won because in act two, God wins by power. And power is not the same thing as goodness. Anybody who's met a bully knows this. You can simply be bigger, right? Brent's experience with Jimmy, the sixth grader, and not necessarily be better. And so that doubt lingers now in the story, and the drama is set for Act 3. The heart of God has now been called into question. He is on trial. Act 3. In the beginning, Genesis 1. In the beginning of Act 3, you see God preparing to woo our hearts with a world that is breathtakingly beautiful and funny and full of adventure. I mean, what we rather blandly call, you know, sort of creation in the creation-evolution debate. He makes Maui. He makes the French Alps. He makes the collegiates. He makes horses and hummingbirds and mangoes, and Cabernet grapes. Go figure. And he gives us the whole thing like a wedding present, right? He says, here, do you like it? Take it for a spin. He creates us to be his intimate allies, to borrow Allender's phrase. He creates us For intimacy with himself as reflections of this Trinity, to be welcomed into the heart of things and to take our role in the story, to be his allies here in the drama. And he takes an unbelievable risk. He gives us freedom to reject him. It is staggering. He has already suffered one massive betrayal. He knows what free-willed creatures can do. Why? Why? God, you know in your foreknowledge how we will use it. Why do you give us freedom? Phil Yancey says that power can do everything but the most important thing. It cannot control love. The guards in the concentration camp possess unlimited power over you if you're their prisoner. They can make you renounce your God, kill and bury your own mother, eat human excrement. There is one thing they have never been able to force anyone to do. Love them. It's why God seems shy to use His power. As Douglas John Hall has said, Love complicates the life of God as it complicates every life. He gives us freedom because he doesn't want puppets. He wants lovers. He wants intimate allies. And we kick off the honeymoon by sleeping with the enemy. Satan comes to Eve in the garden with the very same doubt he used in Act 2, and it's the very same doubt that he is using in your life today. You can't really trust the heart of this God. He's not really for you, Eve. You see how he's kind of holding out on you over here? There's this one thing he's not letting you have. You've got to take matters into your own hands. We believe him, and paradise is lost. When you live in an externally focused Christianity, when you live in a Christianity of tips and techniques, you trivialize sin. Sin is drinking, swearing, smoking, running stop signs. God calls it adultery of the heart. It is what you give your heart away to other than the heart of God. And we kick off the honeymoon by sleeping with the enemy. God comes into the garden after the fall, and He says in one of the most poignant verses of all Scripture, What have you done? What have you done? Do you have any idea what you have just done? I made your hearts for freedom, for the heroic intimacy that all of you long for, and you gave them away in bondage to my worst enemy and yours. And I made the earth for beauty and for glory, and you gave it away to him as well. Incidentally, when Satan comes to Jesus and they have their little showdown in the wilderness and he tempts him and he offers him the earth, the kingdoms of the world, he's not offering him something he can't give. They're his now. That's why John calls him the prince of this world. We gave the whole thing away. Paradise is more than lost. But here at the worst moment in the larger story, something about the heart of God is revealed that nobody ever saw before. And what's that? Grace. He says to Adam and Eve, your life is going to be very hard now in very gender-specific ways, but I will come for you. I'll come for you. He promises that a day will come when He will rescue us. Nobody knew. Nobody knew that the heart of God was like this. And then the long story of God's pursuit of a people whose hearts will be His begins to unfold, first in Noah, and then in Abraham, and then in the people of Israel. You see God looking, looking, looking for a people who will once more be His intimate allies, who will join Him from the heart To play their parts in the larger drama. You get to the prophets, and Phil Yancey said, It's like listening to a lover's quarrel through the apartment wall. I mean, theologians who talk about the impassibility of God, that God is beyond emotion, they have never read Jeremiah. He is ranting and raving in there, in Isaiah, in all the prophets. He is the jealous lover who has been stilted. He says, return to me, and I will forgive everything, because I love you, and you are precious in my sight. But you, you are a swift she-camel in heat, sniffing the wind in her craving, running here and there after all your other lovers. I said, return to me, but you said, it is no use. I love foreign gods, and I must go after them. (laughs) Adultery of the heart. The whole thing breaks down at the end of the Old Testament, and all relationship is over. 400 years of silence. God won't call when we do. He won't pick up the phone. G.K. Chesterton said the central idea of the Old Testament might simply be called the loneliness of God. No one really turning to him from the heart except a few whom he calls his friends, his allies. However, the story is about to take a delicious turn. God has something up his sleeve that is absolutely astounding, and it is the theme of every great story in the world. Here's how Kierkegaard tells what God's going to do in a parable. He says, suppose there was a king who loved a humble maiden, Now, no king was like this king. Every other ruler trembled before his power. No one dared breathe a word against him. And yet this mighty king was melted by love for a humble maiden. How could he declare his love for her? In a way, his kingliness tied his hands. Because if he just comes to her cottage in the woods with his armed escort and his royal carriages and the whole army and the bright banners waving, it would overwhelm her if he just took her straight to the castle and crowned her with jewels and clothed her with royal robes, she might say she loved him. But would she? Really? How could he know? And so in this parable, the mighty king leaves his escort and carriages and armies behind. He disguises himself as a beggar and he comes to her door in the woods alone to win her heart. It's the incarnation. The Ancient of Days sneaks into the enemy camp disguised as a newborn. The great romancer, the heart behind all hearts comes into our lives as a carpenter from Nazareth. See, that's why Paul says in Romans 5, Oh, I know. I know the evidence looks mixed. I know the world seems to scream at you every day. You cannot trust the heart of this God. But look at the cross. Here, beyond all question, Jesus answered Satan's doubt, his challenge. Can you trust the heart of this God? You have never been loved so fiercely. He is more for you than you ever imagined. Nothing is the same since the cross. We live somewhere towards the end of Act 3, and our lover has done the wildest thing. He left! He says, I'll see you in Act 4. You carry on the invasion. You are my intimate allies now. That's why I have captured you. I have rescued you. I came for you just as I promised I would. And now carry on the battle for hearts. Because Act 4 is just around the corner. And when Paul says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, all that God has prepared for those who love him, he's not saying, So just don't think about it. He's saying, You can't outdream God. What's about to happen in the story? Something absolutely breathtaking. Something absolutely wonderful. Our pictures of heaven are pathetic. As Peter Kreff says, The Pictures of heaven do not move us. They are not moving pictures, right? Fat little babies, tiny wings flying around, bored saints strumming harps, you know, wondering what's going on back on earth where the real action is, right? Act four. Act four is coming, and it is the adventure back on track. The fall was an interruption that God has more than dealt with. And in Revelations 21, He says, I'm making all things new. He doesn't say I'm making all new things. He says I'm making all things new. You, the earth, the heavens, and we are going to have a ball. I want to show you the power of a larger story to restore heart like this. What was that? That scene, those guys up on the hill, it was not Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It was not Braveheart. It was the nearing the climax of Shakespeare's Henry V. This is the version uh, with Kenneth Branagh. And um, in the story of Henry V, Shakespeare gives us a metaphor of a Christian king. He gives us a metaphor of Christ. Henry, King Hal, has captured the hearts of his people, and he has led them personally into battle against the forces of evil. Why is this the theme of every great fairy tale, every great story? Because it echoes the true story. That's why. Because there's something in our hearts that knows it's true. And in this case, it's France, and they have marched against France, and they have fought two major battles And now the English army has been reduced to a small band of men. Many of them are wounded. Many of them are exhausted. They have been marching through days, through the mud and rain now for days. They are sick and they are tired. And they come to the field of Agincourt, true story, in France. And there they are met by the entire French army. Five French soldiers to every Englishman and all the French are armored and all of them are rested. The French have a mounted cavalry. The English have none. It looks overwhelming. It looks like the odds that we face today in our own lives. And what you saw in that scene was what Shakespeare calls the overlusty French. Because they're sitting up on the top of the hill and they're looking down on these guys and they're saying there's not enough work here for us all to do. Right? This is going to be nothing. And now the scene shifts to the English camp, and then King Henry steps into the picture, and in one biblical allusion after another, he begins to give them back their hearts by calling them into a larger story. The English go on to win that battle. Can you imagine if... uh, King Henry had tried to do the J. Evans Pritchard approach uh, at that point. Well, I realize it's a difficult situation, and we're kind of outnumbered, but you know, if you just follow a few principles, you guys, if you just do the right thing, now he calls them up into a larger story, and he gives them back their hearts. He says, all things are ready, you see. Our hearts are in the trim. And Satan comes in the figure of the courier from France, and he says, you really don't want to do this. Right? You really don't want to live like this. You do not want to live from the heart. Compromise. And just like Christ, King Henry says, No, kill me first. I refuse to give in to you. God is more than author, He is the hero. He has come into the story to reveal just how kind His heart is. And he is restoring each of us to be his intimate allies once more, disrupting us out of all of our smaller little soap operas that we call our lives to live from the heart into something far larger and more wonderful than most of us had any idea. That's the true story. But of course, every story does have a villain. And that's the subject of our next lecture. I hope you're enjoying the series on The Sacred Romance. This was the series that birthed the book, The Sacred Romance, that Brent and I wrote. And this was part four in a ten-part series that we'll be running here during the summer. Thanks for listening in to the Ransomed Heart Podcast.